The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Pathway to Decoding the Impact of Cancer Immunotherapy, Latest Advances in Biomarker Testing and Pathologic Response Assessment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GZR860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, welcome to this uh, session of Pathway to Decoding the Puzzle of Cancer Immunotherapy Impact in Predicting Benefit and Assessing Response. Today's faculty is myself. I'm Kurt Schalper. I'm an Associate Professor of Pathology and Medical Oncology at Yale University, and Dr. Vamsidar Velchetti. He's a Professor of Medicine and a Thoracic Oncologist at New York University, um, and he's the Director of Thoracic Oncology Program. So today we will review uh, gaps and opportunities for improvement in the use um, and uh, management of uh, immunotherapy biomarkers. One of the important aspects that motivates this presentation is that the landscape of immunotherapy biomarkers is complex. It changes across different tumors um, and it has been relatively difficult to implement. Um, one of the reasons for that is because today, decision-making for treatment initiation across different diseases type requires both markers of uh, genomic uh, alterations in the tumor, but also markers of immunotherapy. Uh, and generally, we're now combining biomarkers to optimize uh, treatment decisions. The, the problem with immunotherapy biomarkers is that there has been a lot of difficulties implementing them in a way that it's uh, clinically uh, optimal. And this is reflected in variations in the way we still score PDL1 across the world. Um, the data that you're seeing on the slide shows that still, until recently, um, surveys done by the um, International Association of the Study of Lung Cancer and other organizations have shown a lot of variation in the assays being selected to test for PDL1, the way PDL1 is being scored by pathologists, and also the way the assay is being standardized. So still, after all these years, we have some limitations in PDL1 testing that can potentially be resolved, or at least some of them, using standardization and training. The second important point is that molecular biomarkers of immunotherapy, such as microsatellite stability and tumor mutational burden, were not originally created and meant for being necessarily good immunotherapy biomarkers. So there is a lot of variation in how these biomarkers are deployed um, and what, how patients are selected for that type of testing. So there's still a lot to learn about uh, these molecular markers for immunotherapy. There is another thing happening uh, over the last few years, which is the movement of immunotherapy to um, an earlier stage disease, usually the resectable setting. And there are emerging uh, therapies that now we're calling perioperative, where immunotherapy is being used in the neoadjuvant setting, so before surgical resection or after surgical resection, which we call adjuvant immunotherapy. And then the combination of them, which we're calling perioperative immunotherapy. So now this is triggering a lot of changes in the way we pathologists are actually scoring um, the effect of these treatments, typically in the resection specimen, and how that can influence decision-making for further monitoring or therapeutic uh, options. So the topics of discussion for today in the educational goals are related with exactly the two elements that I mentioned. First, we will discuss what are the changes, updates, and how to appropriately use biomarker testing for using immunotherapy, mostly in the frontline setting across solid tumors. And second, we will discuss how is 
um, uh, treatment or use of immunotherapy in the resectable stage um, affecting the way we are handling biomarkers in that setting. So with that, I'll hand uh, over to Dr. Velchetti so he can discuss some recent updates in the landscape of immunotherapy. Thank you, Dr. Sharper. And, um, you know, uh, over the past uh, year, we've had like uh, multiple uh, new developments in um, immunotherapy in solid tumors across different solid tumors. Uh, but the most uh, exciting and new uh, change in the last year has been approval of immunotherapy treatments in the perioperative space, especially in the new adjuvant and perioperative space in uh, non-small cell lung cancer. In addition to that, uh, there have also been some uh, significant updates in terms of uh, PDL1 cutoffs for uh, uh, gastric uh, cancers uh, uh, in the trials. So uh, this has led to a lot of uh, excitement in uh, a lot of different indications, including uh, in the perioperative space for uh, patients with uh, med uh, lung cancer. So uh, now we'll focus on lung cancer as a representative example for talking about like biomarker testing and uh, implications of immunotherapy in lung cancer. So over the last decade, we have seen uh, significant uh, evolution in terms of treatment options for patients with metastatic lung cancer. And we've had multiple approvals in multiple uh, different indications and uh, multiple different regimens uh, uh, in combination with chemotherapy, in combination with uh, uh, multiple different types of immunotherapies. So we've actually seen significant improvement in outcomes um, across the board with uh, metastatic uh, lung cancer patients. So when it comes to uh, management and workup of patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, PDL1 uh, is not a perfect biomarker, but still is actually a biomarker that informs clinical decision-making. Uh, and uh, especially in patients who have uh, a PDL1 greater than 50%, you have an option to potentially give them treatments with uh, PD1 monotherapy and uh, uh, avoid chemotherapy treatments in some of the patients who may not uh, necessarily need chemotherapy for that subgroup. And of course, you know, like uh, uh, in the clinical trials that we've had, I just showed you uh, like the multiple clinical trials uh, with multiple different regimens and chemotherapy combinations and immuno, immuno combinations that have been FDA approved. And uh, the level of PDL1 expression does inform clinical decision making uh, for the clinician. Uh, trying to decide uh, among various treatment options for these patients. For example, there might be some patients who are like, uh, you know, having moderately high PDL1 expression who are very poor candidates for chemotherapy. Uh, that PDL1 uh, information might potentially inform clinical decision making for the oncologists treating the patients. And of course, you know, there are a lot of clinical nuances that also inform uh, what we do as oncologists for our patients, like, for example, uh, you know, overall disease burden and putting things in context to the PDL1 expression in terms of how, uh, how we kind of approach uh, systemic therapy options for those patients. And uh, over the past uh, few years, we've actually seen significant changes in terms of our approach to systemic therapy in perioperative uh, 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 space in the non-small cell lung cancer. We've had uh, one 
clinical trial, the Checkmate 816, which was uh, uh, FDA approved uh, for uh, patients with uh, early stage resectable patient, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, where patients received chemotherapy with nivolumab, and uh, 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 patients went to have surgery. And, you know, in that clinical trial, there were no uh, patients did not get adjuvant chemotherapy. And then uh, we have two different regimens FDA approved for um, adjuvant immunotherapy. The IMPOWER 10 trial, which was the first adjuvant immunotherapy trial, uh, which led to FDA approval, uh, required a cutoff of PDL1 greater than 1% uh, based on the trial uh, uh, data. And the uh, cutoff was like greater than or equal to 1% PDL1. And uh, more recently, the Keynote 91 trial, uh, which is a very similarly designed trial, uh, just that the uh, this particular trial did not require PDL1 expression for patients to participate, and the, the label reflected the nature of the clinical trial. And uh, pembrolizumab was approved for adjuvant immunotherapy regardless of PDL1 expression. And um, uh, in addition to that, and more recently, we have three different clinical trials looking at uh, perioperative or sandwich immunotherapy approach where patients received neoadjuvant chemo immunotherapy followed by surgery, followed by immunotherapy adjuvant after surgery. There are three trials that uh, uh, we have results from, and the Keynote 671 led to FDA approval for pembrolizumab in the perioperative space, patients receiving chemo and pembro surgery and adjuvant uh, pembrolizumab for one year. And uh, uh, the other two regimens are not yet FDA approved yet, but uh, the data, uh, the trial readouts uh, uh, were positive and met its primary endpoint of uh, event-free survival. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Sharper to talk about uh, predictive biomarkers and um, role of uh, uh, biomarkers in treatment selection for patients. So now we will discuss predictive immunotherapy biomarkers, um, and we will focus um, first on PDL1. When we think about immunotherapy biomarkers, we actually see a relatively complex landscape um, of candidate biomarkers and one biomarkers that have been already approved. So if we look at the entire field of biomarkers, there have been a number of metrics associated with sensitivity and resistance, and we can globally classify them as immuno biomarkers, immune-related biomarkers, or phenotype biomarkers, which are on the upper part of the slide uh, with things like PDL1, T-cell infiltration, um, interferon gamma signatures, and others. And then we have tumor-based biomarkers, which are generally related with uh, somatic genomic alterations in the cancer cell. Um, and you can find their microsatellite instability or tumor mutational burden and other genomic metrics. The most important point is that up to date, there are only three of these metrics that have been regulatory approved for use in patients, um, which are PDL1 immunohistochemistry, which is an, an immune related metric, and then microsatellite instability and tumor mutational burden for the tumor based metrics. So in the next few slides, we will discuss first PDL1 and what are relevant elements to reliably score PDL1. Then we will discuss microsatellite instability and finally um, close with uh, some information about tumor mutational burden. So PDL1 has been out there for a while now. 
um, and it has generated some problems, clinical problems, because there were multiple assays being developed, and also those assays seem to have performed differently across uh, tumor indications. But there are some global principles that we can use to reliably score PDL1, or at least to do uh, a best practice approach. And some of them are summarized in this slide um, and include um, relatively obvious things like using a validated assay, um, making sure the samples are pre-analytically uh, correct, and also consider um, if the tumor and assay and, and, and the tumor type are actually matching. But then there are some more specific elements that are particular to PDL1 that are related with, uh, for example, where to score PDL1 and how. Uh, and in general, it's accepted that we need specimens with at least 100 viable tumor cells to make it um, reliable. And then also that we're scoring tumor and stromal cells. However, the reporting of those scoring may be uh, different across different tumor indications. The other important element that it's common is that we are scoring membrane staining um, in the tumor cells, and then some assays score uh, um, cytoplasmic signal in the immune cells. Uh, but it's important that we need uh, membrane staining, and the membrane staining can actually be incomplete. So th this is not like uh, other biomarkers that we have scored in the past, where we require complete, intense membrane staining, like HER2. Here we can have partial staining. Another element is that uh, we don't consider the intensity of the staining. In this case, any staining that it's a membranous pattern, it's considered as positive. And then we have uh, to exclude areas of non-invasive tissue and consider also that PDL1 can be heterogeneously distributed. So we have to integrate different areas of the sample. To show uh, how this actually works in practice, I selected some examples um, to highlight these points. And this is a case where you can see um, an immunohistochemistry with 22C3 assay on the left and uh, corresponding H&E on the right. Um, and, and it's obvious here that both tumor cells and non-tumor cells, in this case macrophages, show clear membrane staining. One of the important points here is that sometimes discerning between epithelial malignant cells and macrophages is not straightforward, particularly in small specimens. So it's important to note um, that these uh, cell populations can be positive and we need to try to discern uh, between them. Another element that can that is related with this is that sometimes um, there is positivity only in the immune cells and not in the tumor cells. And here's where uh, the tumor context may be relevant. For example, in lung cancer, um, the, the most uh, widely used assay, which is 22C3, is scored exclusively in the tumor cells, which we call tumor proportion score. Um, so in this case, for example, despite having positive macrophages, it will be called negative. So really understanding the context of the cells that are positive and the tumor in which is being used, uh, it's relevant to um, decide how to report this. Other examples that are um, common are tumors that show extensive necrosis. And necrotic areas, as shown in the slide, can actually aggregate non-specifically primary or secondary antibody producing a brown signal, which in this case doesn't mean that there is or there was PDL1 expression. It can just actually be interpreted as an artifact. So we need to be careful in um, ruling out that the, the chromogenic staining may actually be an experimental artifact. And then also there are considerations relative to the morphological context. In some tumors, and this is an example in breast cancer, um, we only need to um, score the invasive component. And areas of ductal carcinoma in situ or other non-invasive components do not um, um, need to be integrated into the score. And this is an example where you can see 
um, a, a foci of invasive carcinoma on the upper right um, and an area of um, non-invasive or, or DCIS on the left where the signal should not be considered either in the tumor or in the stroma. So these are another uh, elements. And then finally, there is a lot of um, concern about the heterogeneity of PD-L1, not only across tumors within the same patient, but also within the same tumor. Um, and this can happen as shown in this example in gastric adenocarcinoma. This is an endoscopic biopsy where two different fragments are actually two complete different levels of PD-L1 staining. Um, this can be due to um, staining problems, um, you know, that occur during the process, but it can also be real biological heterogeneity. And in this case, the current recommendation is to actually integrate the scores from different fragments um, to produce um, one unified level of PDL1 expression. There have been attempts by um, um, bodies, um, professional bodies such as the College of, of American Pathologies, to generate uh, guidelines or suggestions of how this can be done. And this is a draft guideline um, that was uh, published a couple of years ago. Um, there are a number of recommendations that are um, quite obvious and they overlap with the, the rationale that I just highlighted. Uh, but there are a few things that are interesting. Uh, and for example, if you focus here on number five and six, um, there are recommendations specifically to using percent scoring and continue scores, usually in five or 10% increments. But there's also a recommendation to not use uh, tumor mutational burden as a surrogate marker for um, other markers uh, as TMB um, or interchangeably uh, between uh, uh, molecular markers. So now we're going to talk briefly about uh, microsatellite instability. Uh, and microsatellite instability has been tested for a long time, mostly in the context of colorectal cancer and Lynch syndrome. However, with immunotherapy, we started using uh, microsatellite instability in across different uh, solid tumors. So one important question is what and how is the performance of microsatellite instability across cancers and beyond colorectal carcinomas? And there are studies like the one uh, shown in this slide um, where the frequency of microsatellite instability has been calculated. And what is obvious here is that there is a bimodal distribution where three uh, tumor types seem to carry the highest frequency of microsatellite instability and the majority of cases are very negative or, or show low, low frequency. Um, these tumors are uterine carcinomas, colon adenocarcinomas, and gastric adenocarcinomas, which have frequencies that oscillate between 10 and 30%. Most institutions now are doing reflex testing of microsatellite instability in these three tumor types and then selected uh, testing in the other indications, but this is still not completely um, uniform across institutions. Another important point that we have learned the hard way is that the number of microsatellite loci that can be affected is actually quite different across tumors, which is now driving some decisions about what test can be used in what indication, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. So the two traditional clinical tests to assess microsatellite instability or mismatch repair deficiency are immunohistochemistry on the left, which we typically um, combine four markers that are shown there. Um, and this is a, a really important test because first, it's available widely. Second, it's inexpensive. And third, it doesn't require germline uh, DNA or germline specimens. So it can be tested in most of the specimens. It generally has a short turnaround time and a high sensitivity that we estimate to be in the neighborhood of 85%. Um, so um, this is, I think, uh, 
the most widely used test across institutions. The second test that is widely used is what we call the, the molecular test of, of PCR plus capillary electrophoresis. This is essentially a test measuring fragment size of five mononucleotide markers and two pentanucleotide markers for sample identification. This is a high sensitivity test that oscillates in the 93 plus percent, uh, but it has some shortcomings. First, that it's not widely available. And second, that it requires uh, per uh, germline DNA or per germline DNA to be able to interpret, which is sometimes hard to um, um, get. So in general, I would say that uh, these two tests have been um, widely tested, widely used, and actually used for the selection of patients uh, that were treated with immunotherapy in trials that drove the approval. So they're uh, clearly the, the best opportunities uh, to use. But there are now uh, new ways to test for microsatellite instability. And over the last years, there have been a lot of developments in being able to look at microsatellite loci in panels of next generation sequencing and being able to interpret microsatellite instability using not only five markers, but hundreds of them. Um, today, I think it's well accepted that most of these um, sequencing panels can uh, interpret, can discover and report um, microsatellite instability. Uh, but there's still some question about how they perform in certain specific tumor indications. And this is essentially lack of clinical data showing that they can effectively predict sensitivity to immunotherapy. So these are examples of immunohistochemistry. This is a very typical example with a case um, without uh, microsatellite instability or what we call microsatellite stable, where all the markers, MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and PS PMS2 are expressed both in the cancer cells, but also in the non-tumor cells. So this is a perfect case of um, microsatellite um, stable um, tumors. And this is a prototypical case of, of mismatch repair deficiency or microsatellite instability, where we can see that two of the markers, MLH1 on the upper left and PMS2 on the lower right, are actually not present exclusively in the cancer cells. And this is the way uh, we interpret uh, microsatellite instability on immunohistochemistry. However, life is imperfect. And there are cases like the one I'm sharing here where some of the tumor cells express the markers, some of the stromal cells do, but it's actually quite ambiguous and it's hard to see or to clearly identify the markers as being present or lost. Um, and in cases like this, there are current recommendations by the College of American Pathologies recently endorsed by ASCO, uh, where these cases should try to be retested using an orthogonal test. In this case, it would be a molecular test or next generation sequencing, but there is also a if possible, it would be good to uh, test in a different sample from the same uh, patient. In general, the recommendation also supports that any positive test for microsatellite instability should be considered um, to give the patient the opportunity of the immunotherapy benefit. So when there are discordances, uh, any positive test um, would be considered as a positive result. So this are, uh, is a summary of recommendations by the College of American Pathologists um, about um, how to handle mismatch repair deficiency or microsatellite instability testing. Um, and what I want to highlight here is that if you see, um, you know, between number one and four, uh, it's clear that there is a, um, a difference in the accepted way to test for different tumors, where, for example, in colorectal, we can use um, immunohistochemistry 
um, molecular testing or neck generation sequencing, but the recommendation doesn't extend the same way for gastroesophageal tumors and endometrial tumors or other solid tumors where the evidence is not still mature um, to support testing using any of the methods. So for most of the cases, immunohistochemistry is still the most um, accepted biomarker, and in some tumors, um, we can still apply um, other uh, biomarkers uh, reliably. And this is uh, uh, evolving because as data accumulates, it, it's expected that more uh, tumors will be amenable for being tested with different methods. So now what about TMB? TMB has also been a relatively difficult uh, biomarker to integrate. And the reason is because this is biologically complex. So what tumor mutational burden measures is essentially the number of non-synonymous mutations in a given tumor divided by the, the amount of genome that was covered in that sequencing process. Um, and essentially, the biological rationale for using it is that these uh, mutant uh, sequences are able to encode um, altered peptides or mutant neopeptides that are actually can be presented um, by the HLA system of the patient and ultimately be seen by T cells. And this is the most accepted uh, theory, why high tumor mutational burden and to some extent mismatch repair deficiency can actually sensitize those tumors to immunotherapy. However, um, the data, it's largely based on clinical results where you can see um, association studies where most of the tumors that are typically sensitive or more sensitive to immunotherapy, which are indicated on the right, are the ones that carry a higher number of non-synonymous mutations and you can see on the left, the tumors that are typically insensitive to immunotherapy tend to show fewer mutations. And this is one of the rationales why um, this idea of, of high number of mutations uh, can be associated with immunotherapy response. However, recognizing the number of non-synonymous mutations or just counting mutations depends on what is the strategy that is being used to do it. Uh, and there are a number of ways at this point we're doing um, next generation sequencing in, in, in the clinical setting. Um, and I would say that uh, the golden standard to actually call the number of mutations today is whole exome DNA sequencing, which is essentially looking at the entire uh, coding genome or the entire coding genes, which are about 21 to 22,000 genes. And it's about 30 megabases of sequencing. This is a lot of sequencing. It's not um, very easy to do in the clinic because of the cost and the amount of time it takes. It's also uh, difficult to report and has a, a turnaround time that it's at least, you know, four to six weeks. So it's not necessarily the best option, but it is the most reliable analytically speaking. So it should be used as a reference for TMB. But then there are panels that have been uh, regulatory approved that can also report um, tumor mutational burden. And you can see here two examples. Um, this is a commercial test by foundation and impact panel on the right by Sloan Kettering. They include different number of genes and they cover different areas of the genome. So they may have uh, different properties or capacity to find um, um, mutations, but they have more um, reasonable costs and turnaround times. So there is this um, balance, you know, between accuracy and actually uh, the practicality of doing them. The main reason why tumor mutational burden became clinically relevant is because um, there have been studies, and this is a, a clinical trial that demonstrated that tumors with high baseline um, tumor mutational burden are actually more sensitive 
um, to immunotherapy. And this is a study using pembrolizumab in which we can see that every tumor that had more than 10 mutations per megabase using panel testing, um, actually in, uh, indicated in blue, show a higher overall response rate, which supported the FDA approval of tumor mutational burden as a tumor agnostic indication, meaning that any tumor today that has uh, more than 10 mutations per megabase using an approved test can actually be or has the potential to be sensitive to immunotherapy. There is data in, in, in tumor-specific context. Um, this is a study I was involved in, which we look at the role of tumor mutational burden in lung cancer. And what we found is that there is um, a, a benefit in patients that are treated with immunotherapy, but we found um, the benefit to be maximal at 90 mutations per megabase, which is higher than the 10 mutation per megabase uh, uh, threshold that was approved. Uh, for every tumor indication. So the point here is that while tumor mutational burden has uh, potentially a role in selecting patients, it, there may be nuances relative to the assay that it's being used and the cut point that that assay can produce. Um, so there are a number of questions still um, about how to use uh, tumor mutational burden and how to interpret the data. There have been standardization efforts to try to harmonize uh, tumor mutational burden. And this is a summary from the Friends of Cancer Research effort. Um, I want to highlight here the, the right uh, side uh, panel. Um, this is a study that tested 25 specimens across different laboratories that are indicated with different colors. And what is interesting is that every laboratory correlated with each other. And you can see that all of them have um, high correlations but most of them deviated from the 45 degree line, which indicates that while they correlated, the numerical values were different. This is important because depending on what assay is used, the cut point may actually vary. And this is something that needs to be standardized before um, selecting patients using that particular assay or laboratory. Finally, there is a lot of um, partial biological overlap between Tumors that have microsatellite instability, they repair the DNA poorly, and they usually have a high number of mutations. And tumor mutational burden, which are tumors that have a high number of mutations, regardless of the cost. Um, so just to highlight that these are not the same, um, the, this Venn diagram from a previous publication shows that a good fraction of tumors that have microsatellite instability, which are shown in blue, actually have a mis uh, high tumor mutational burden, which is shown in orange. However, a large number of tumors do not overlap and can have tumor mutational burden without microsatellite instability and the other way around. So this is important because we should not confuse or, or um, you know, interpret um, those tests to be uh, redundant. So now we're going to move to the second part of the presentation. We will talk about how to address pathological response after uh, neoadjuvant treatment uh, of using immunotherapy. Uh, Dr. Velchetti mentioned at the beginning um, the, the modalities for using uh, therapy in the perioperative setting include essentially two. One, that it's uh, the, what we call adjuvant immunotherapy in which the, the immunotherapy is given after the tumor is resected. And then we have what we call neoadjuvant immunotherapy in which immunotherapy is given before the, the, the tumor is resected. Now we have a third modality called perioperative in which the tumor, the immunotherapy is given before the resection and then typically um, given for another year after the tumor is resected. So that's why it's called perioperative because it occurs before and after surgery. 
These treatments have shown to be effective, um, and there is a, a high number of studies being conducted, um, which you can see here on this slide. Um, if you see from year 2013 to 2020, there is a, a really rapid increase in the number of studies that are testing uh, new adjuvant options. Um, so we, this is a growing field, very active one, and there are a lot of developments that we need to pay attention to. But this is already in the clinic, and you can see here a summary of FDA approvals for neoadjuvant um, immunotherapy, one of them in breast cancer and two in non-small cell lung cancer. So this is already uh, a clinical um, uh, problem um, and, and something we need to um, start caring about. So what is the role of the pathologist in, in this context of perioperative treatment? Um, and one of them that it's... Uh, um, clearly established and growing is what we call assessment of pathological response, which is essentially uh, measuring what is the effect of the, the treatment in the tumor, um, typically after surgery. And the way this is being addressed is uh, using a metric called residual viable tumor or RVT, which is a fraction or estimated fraction of viable tumor cells after the systemic treatment before surgery. The important thing about it is that this metric is connected with a long-term survival, um, and it can actually be used both for drug development to have a shorter endpoint to get drugs approved or at least see their benefit, but it can also potentially be used to decide if the patients need perioperative treatment or they would benefit only from the neoadjuvant or they need um, additional treatment after. So this is important now because um, we are, again, in a sort of changing uh, environment. The main reason why it's so relevant is because, as I just mentioned, uh, patients that have a lack of viable tumor cell after treatment generally do very well. And there is an argument to be made here that they may not require additional treatment after surgery. Um, you can see here the patients with uh, pathological complete response, or so PCR, um, or near pathological complete response actually have very, very limited recurrence for long periods of up to three years. And this is an example in melanoma. While patients that have residual viable tumor, which are shown here, um, particularly in the orange um, survival curve, they do have um, a, a huge amount of recurrence over time. This is not exclusive for melanoma. This is data now in Merkel cell carcinoma. Um, and you can see again, that patients with pathological complete response do much better and they recur much less than patients that don't achieve pathological complete response. So this is one of the reasons why um, we're now putting a lot of energy in um, standardizing uh, evaluation of uh, surgical specimens. So as I just mentioned, what important concept here is that today, the thing we care about are we, what we call percentage of residual viable tumor cells or RVT, and this is, in, in a very simple term, it's just the number of viable tumor in the area of the sample covered by what we call the tumor bed. And this is typically determined um, using both categorical ways and continuous ways. The categorical, uh, or most widely categorical system, classifies the, the response into three, um, three subtypes. One that we call PCR, pathologic complete response, essentially no viable tumor cells. But then there are two other categories, we typically call major pathological response when there is only less than 10% viable tumor, and then partial response, which is essentially between 10 and 50%.
So these are generally categories that we can use. But in reality, we score uh, this typically using continuous scores in increments of 5 or 10%. What is important about this is that since the, this is a continuous metric, there is actually a possibility that different cut points may behave in different ways. And the optimal cut point for one disease or treatment may not be the same as other disease or treatment. This is shown here where you can see this ROC curve where um, the cut point uh, or the performance varies as a function of the cut point used. So this is just to say that we need to essentially keep our eyes open because there may be contexts in which the cut point of viable tumor cells may be different relative to the treatment or relative to the tumor type. In the case of lung cancer, to use as an example, there are two um, well-accepted uh, ways of scoring for this pathological response to treatment. One of them has been out there for a long time, um, and it was established by the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer. Uh, and this was initially created uh, in the context of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and it's based essentially on the principle that I just told you, was identifying what proportion of the tumor bed contains uh, viable, tumor, uh, viable epithelial cancer cells. Um, and you can see here an example of how it's done. So we essentially take a full face of the tumor bed that needs to be identified using uh, grossing. And then we map the entire tumor bed to be able to classify what fraction of that bed corresponds to viable tumor cells, non-viable tumor cells or necrosis, and then the stroma. And all of that needs to add to 100%. So this is the way we produce the score to be able to report it. There's another um, recent um, uh, reported way to score samples after neoadjuvant immunotherapy, and this was uh, developed uh, essentially in the context of Checkmate 816 trial, in which uh, it's very similar. The, the fraction of viable tumor cells post-treatments are scored, but now the tumor bed area has a slightly different definition that includes both the area of um, necrosis, but also the area of what it's called regression bed which is the, the area of the tissue that has a morphological changes consistent with uh, regression after uh, immunological changes. Um, the problem is that these two systems, while they use the same principles, they're not perfectly overlapping. Uh, and this is an example where this can occur, um, where uh, the, the regression bed, um, it's larger than the uh, tumor bed that would be classified by the previous system. So in this case, we could have big discordances that you know, go from all the way to 40 to 80%. Um, so unfortunately, uh, the systems don't, don't perfectly agree. Uh, and the regression uh, that it's being proposed by the second system actually uses a number of histologic features to identify that regression bed, which as I mentioned, is associated with um, adaptive immune responses. These are shown here in the slide, um, and they actually include quite different elements uh, including specific cell types, tertiary lymphostructures, vascular alterations, and other features. The interesting thing, or the good thing, though, is that the, when these two scoring systems are compared, um, you can see here in this slide, um, on the left uh, is the uh, system using the ISLAC uh, method. The area under the curve is 0 0.74. In the same cases, scored now using the regression-based method is 0 0.76. So they're very, very similar. The bad news, though, is that the optimal cut point to predict uh, the survival here is actually different for both methods, which is not surprising because the denominator 
in the calculation of uh, RVT is actually different. Um, so there are questions of how this is going to be resolved. Um, and I think this uh, needs to be discussed in the future. A common question is how to handle lymph nodes uh, after treatment. Usually tumors are resected and frequently um, uh, lymph node stations are taken. Um, today, there is not like a clear answer to this problem, but there are recommendations to actually uh, take the lymph nodes, um, determine the tumor bed and calculate um, the, the, the viable proportion of tumor in a similar manner um, to the primary tumor. Uh, there is still data needed to decide how to better do this and what are the obvious thresholds, but it's recommended now to actually evaluate the lymph nodes too. So the take home messages for the, the, the this discussion is that I think we need to be aware that neoadjuvant and perioperative immunotherapy is driving a dramatic increase in the demand for pathological response assessment. And it's not only a problem of volume, it's requiring more precision and more standardization. Uh, and now I think uh, we need to be uh, aware, you know, that the, the, the consequences of the interpretation of the pathological computer response can actually impact patient care in dramatic ways. The second take home message is that there are standardized um, scoring systems that can be used um, to, to evaluate this pathological response. But still, um, there are some uh, differences between them, uh, particularly across tumors and across treatment. It would be great to actually have one unified harmonized system that could be used for any treatment and any tumor. Uh, and this could certainly benefit both patients and, and pathologies that are actually scoring. But unfortunately, this is not the case yet. We have at least you know, a, a few scoring system that have been reported for almost every tumor type. Uh, and as I told you here, in the case of lung cancers, they have prominent overlaps but they also have difference that may impact the way they're used and how they're um, interpreted uh, and, and how they're um, used to decide treatment. So I think uh, there, there are still um, more uh, data to be um, collected and, and, and used reasonably to make this decision. So now we're going to discuss uh, questions from learners um, about uh, important topics that may not be the easiest one to deal with. And we'll take advantage of having Dr. Velchetti here um, to give us the clinical perspective. So Dr. Velchetti, one of the questions that I always um, wonder about is that we, we spend all this time and energy uh, you know, measuring biomarkers and we have learned quite a bit about how to test PDL one TMB, microsatellite instability, and now um, all this uh, new adjuvant um, pathological computer response. So the question for you is, how do these biomarkers weigh in, in therapeutic decision-making in the perioperative setting? Are you actually considering pathological complete response um, or even uh, liquid biopsy metrics such as CT and A clearance? How are you factoring all these fa uh, elements, you know, to decide treatment uh, in this setting? So, uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Sharper, excellent question. I think like, you know, uh, we've seen a lot of changes in terms of management of uh, perioperative or, or early stage resectable non-small cell lung cancers over the past few years with immunotherapy. And I think the biggest challenge right now is uh, we have more questions than answers, uh, you know, based on like uh, the data that we have so far, you know, now you have like a, a paradigm evolving where you have uh, established adjuvant immunotherapy to different adjuvant immunotherapy treatment options for patients. And now we have one approval with new adjuvant only approval. 
And then we have recent approval of perioperative regimen with chemo, pembro, surgery, and adjuvant immunotherapy. So the biggest challenge right now is how do we kind of factor in all this biomarker information uh, to kind of make uh, the right treatment choice for our patients? Based on what we have seen from the Kino 6-7 trial, there's clearly an uh, event-free survival benefit, and there's an overall survival benefit. So it does appear like giving new adjuvant immunotherapy is actually potentially uh, a superior approach to improve uh, anti-tumor immune responses and potentially prolong a patient's uh, life expectancy. So uh, uh, the question about, you know, what do we do with the pathologic response information? Um, you know, uh, I certainly think we are over-treating a lot of patients if we kind of give adjuvant immunotherapy to all patients without regard to like what kind of response they have at the time of surgery. And as you just pointed out in your talk, you know, uh, I mean, I know we saw the data from melanoma, but like we see very similar data even in the lung cancer setting where patients who have major pathologic response or complete response do extremely well. And it's very likely that they may not need a lot of adjuvant immunotherapy. So, uh, but we don't really know that yet. And, uh, you know, the the future uh, iterations of these perioperative trials should include uh, 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 decision-making in the adjuvant space based on what we learn uh, uh, at the time of uh, surgical response. So if, I, I really feel like, you know, we need to kind of tailor and personalize adjuvant treatment options based on what we learned from the pathologic response from the uh, new adjuvant therapy. Great. Um, and one other question, we always, you know, in the context of biomarkers, we're we are concerned about heterogeneity and heterogeneity comes in multiple flavors. You know, heterogeneity can be spatial within the same specimens, can be within patient, you know, with different lesions, but it can also be temporal or what we call longitudinal. And that's a question that we always, uh, you know, have in the back of our, our mind. So the question for you is, what do you think about the need for retesting immunotherapy biomarkers as patients progress um, over treatments? And should we be retesting uh, things like PDL1, uh, microsatellite instability uh, during the patient journey? Yeah, in the case of metastatic patients, you know, typically, as you know, you know, we use immunotherapy in the frontline setting. So um, oftentimes when patients progress, you know, from a clinical standpoint, repeating a biopsy would not change, uh, at, at least from the perspective of uh, immunotherapy treatments, would not change management. However, to your point, like, you know, uh, do we kind of retest if somebody has like early stage lung cancer and has a recurrence uh, after two or three years, uh, I, I generally tend to like re-biopsy them to uh, confirm um, uh, the, uh, and understand the biology of the tumor at the time of recurrence in order to kind of tailor uh, treatment options for those patients. Um, but in general, like, you know, in patients who are metastatic, uh, uh, because we're using the immunotherapy in the frontline setting, uh, I don't typically rebiopsy all the patients um, uh, on immunotherapy. I will ask you one last question, um, and it's related to the your perspective about the complexity of biomarkers. You know, we're, we're seeing that in the, in the late stage, now it's moving to the front, uh, front, uh, front line and now moving to early stage resectable disease. Um, and it, it sometimes sounds a little overwhelming, you know, to have all these 
array of biomarkers, some of which are continuous with different cut points and different contexts and, and somewhat depending on biology that we don't fully understand. So what do you envision will happen in the future and how you think there is a, a clinically reasonable way to handle this problem uh, now and in the future? No, absolutely, Dr. Sharper. I think that's really the holy grail here. Like, I mean, we have information and different modalities of uh, information uh, that we need to really process and put together. Like, you know, like we have uh, the uh, uh, immune profiling data from your lab and others uh, that's really intriguing. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I think we need to kind of like put together genomic data. We need to put together like uh, uh, immunological data and try to kind of uh, figure out a more uh, multimodality approach uh, to kind of uh, personalize and tailor treatment options for our patients. And uh, at this point, I think we are just uh, beginning the journey to kind of really personalize treatment options for our patients with immunotherapy for lung cancer, uh, especially in the perioperative setting. It's even more important because, you know, this is, this is a population where we are looking at a patient population that we could potentially cure, and we are putting them through all these like systemic therapy modalities before treatment with surgery. So it's even more important for us to really be careful and be very thoughtful in terms of how we kind of use combination-based approaches, especially in the new adjuvant space. I totally agree with you. And I think there is an opportunity here to, to be more accurate, uh, more consistent, um, potentially by incorporating advanced computational methods, um, you know, deep learning, um, artificial intelligence. And I think there is an opportunity now to use these tools potentially to organize this and be able to be uh, do better to our patients. Thank you very much, Dr. Vocetti. This has been a, a great pleasure to discuss this with you and I look forward to future interactions. Thank you, Dr. Sharper. Thanks for inviting me. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GZR860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Merkin Company Incorporated.